take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to just flip to the uh, first page of the bulletin there where you'll find the Scripture text. But Isaiah chapter 38, let's read now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial 10 steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick, and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring, to me, you, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I will walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not, pray, does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word now. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we come to you this morning needing your word, needing your truth, needing your light. We pray you would give it to us. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. We've just gone back in time and behind the scenes. Now, not literally, of course, but this passage takes us back 
before chapters 36 and 37 of Isaiah. Now, is that because Isaiah got confused? Or because somebody else wrote it? Or, or is Isaiah making a larger theological point? Is Isaiah showing us the crisis behind the crisis? We see the crisis of faith behind and before the crisis of war. We're going to see temporary relief for Hezekiah, temporary relief for him, foreshadows temporary relief for Israel. There's a storm coming. There's exile on the horizon for God's people. And all of this foreshadows another good affliction that will further reveal their good God to them. All of it's preparing for Isaiah 40, the comfort that follows the judgment. We are almost there. We can almost taste it. And God's kindness, His gracious reprieves and reliefs should lead us to repentance. But sometimes we need spiritual refresher courses. Sometimes we have to learn the same lesson multiple times. How can we learn from Hezekiah? Well, what do we see him experience? We see three things. First, we see this. A brush with death and a gracious reprieve. A brush with death and a gracious reprieve in verses 1 through 8. Hezekiah is sick. He thinks he's dying, and then God confirms it. Verse 1, set your house in order, God says, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Maybe God is showing us what will happen, humanly speaking, so that he can see how Hezekiah responds. This might be a test. And Hezekiah does a few things right with this test. He prays, verse 2. Should we commend his prayer like we've done for the last two weeks? Well, verse 3, he says, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. These are not the God-centered prayers that Hezekiah would later pray, what we saw the last two weeks. But Hezekiah, he was a good king. Verse 3 is basically true. He had torn down idols and altars. He had reformed God's people, God's nation. And when good kings like that get sick, well, even they might despair. Even we might despair. Because if good men like this can get terminal illnesses, then what can the rest of us do? What should we do? Besides weep, like Hezekiah. You see, you might, you might say this is an understandable prayer. Not necessarily a model prayer, because as one person puts it, Hezekiah resorts to the bargaining power of good works. God will not be mocked. God will not be bargained with. You can't bargain with God. Notice what God doesn't say. Verse 5, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. He doesn't say, yeah, you are a good king, even though, relatively speaking, that's true. God responds to Hezekiah's tears more than he does to his accomplishments. And notice what Hezekiah didn't say, what God sort of adds and inserts here. You might have missed it, verse 5, it's almost like part of the introduction. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. Hezekiah, among other things, was great David's descendant. David, who had been promised a divinely protected dynasty. And Hezekiah was 
quite young when all this happened, probably in his 30s, younger than me, and he was childless at this time. It's the father Abraham problem all over again. Abraham was promised descendants like the sands of the seashore, but as he got older, he still didn't have even one descendant. Hezekiah, he, he looked like the best king since David. Surely he was expected, he, surely he was excited to carry on the godly line of kings, but Hezekiah was sick, dying, and childless. How could God work this together for good? How could God's word still be true? Well, because it was God's word. <laughs> and even if Hezekiah didn't deserve this reprieve, these 15 extra years, God gave it anyway. Even if Hezekiah failed the test, God would be true to his promise. Hezekiah would live. Hezekiah would have a son. It's not mentioned here. That would happen. And God would do it because he was the God of David, the God who made a solemn promise to David and his sons. Verse 6 says, I will deliver you and this city, the city of David, the city of God, out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This is the promise that powers the prayers of Isaiah 36 and 37. This is the promise behind and before those prayers. In the similar account you read in 2 Kings 20, Isaiah asks Hezekiah what miraculous sign he wants. Here the sign is simply announced. God will turn back the hands of time. He will bend the shadows somehow. This is not the beginning of daylight savings time. This is a miraculous act of God. Now I'm not sure if the sun moved, the earth moved, the, the shadow definitely moved in a way that was unnatural against the laws of nature. It moved on the dial of Ahaz, some kind of sundial, possibly in the shape of a staircase. Did Hezekiah deserve all this? The miraculous sign, the miraculous healing. Well, you might say, uh, he was a good king. He never deserved to get sick. But you can almost hear Jesus' likely response can't you? No one is good, but God alone, Mark 10, 18. But see, this section is not about what Hezekiah deserves. It's about the God who longs to be gracious to us, who puts our tears in a bottle, who records our sleepless nights and our wanderings, who adds years to our life that we don't deserve, who defends his people even when they don't deserve it, who defends kings and others, not because we're good people, but because we're his people, called by his name, comforted by his covenant, who gives us covenant signs to confirm his goodness to us. Sometimes those covenant signs are ordinary, simple signs like bread and wine and water to remind us of a blood that was shed, of a body that was broken, of a washing without hands that regenerates our hearts. And sometimes they're extraordinary signs like resurrection, the reversal of time or planetary orbits or the laws of nature. And all of it comes from a gracious God, a God who longs to be gracious to us. But sometimes we are unwilling. Sometimes a reprieve is just a reprieve, just temporary. Sometimes we're all slow learners. And sometimes you can't tell if the lessons taken hold or not. 
But there's still plenty to learn for us. The next thing we see this morning is this. We see a good affliction and a reflective rejoicing. A good affliction and a reflective rejoicing in verses 9 through 20. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. A brush with death is similar to the house of mourning. You, you lay things to heart. You think. You reflect. That's what Hezekiah does here. Now, he ends up rejoicing, but his emotions are all over the map. A simple outline, three verses for each section of these 12 verses, would look like this. Death, despair, deliverance, indwelling. That's not in the sermon notes that are in the bulletin, but call it point 2a, death, verses 9 through 11. We'll skip to verse 10. It says, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. Hezekiah is certain he's going to die despite his young age. God had said so. Verse 11, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. It's the opposite of Psalm 27. It's not much hope here. Not so far. Hezekiah is consumed with death. This is what he went through in the midst of this experience. He, he wrote it after the fact, but you, you get an idea of what it was like in the early verses of this chapter. Consumed with death, maybe it's because he thinks he's unworthy. Maybe he's heard about Isaiah's chapter 6 experience with the God who is holy, 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 and how Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. Maybe Hezekiah thinks he deserves to die. On one level, that's true. And on another level, that might seem like an overreaction, like a glossing over of God's grace. And you know, sometimes you should ask yourself, am I overreacting? Especially when you're exhausted or sick or facing a terminal illness. Because overreactions, especially about your own death or somebody else's, they can easily lead to despair, which is what you see next. To be despair. Verses 12 to 14. There's more woe is me going on here. My life is unfair kind of stuff. Verse 12. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. It's just being plucked up, he says. No rootedness, no permanence, nothing solid. It reminds us that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Oh, Jesus knows what this is like. Like all the things that I trust are just taken away. Like a temporary tent that a wandering shepherd would have. Like a like a piece of cloth that the weaver weaves. When he's done, he just takes it off the loom and rolls it up. Verse 13, I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself. It might be more like I cried for help. Either way, he's certainly in a desperate situation. He says he feels like God is a lion, relentless and mighty, breaking all of his bones. Now, St. Peter would disagree. It's Satan who prowls around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. But the point is, this is how it feels. 
He's expressing his anger, his disappointed feelings to God because as someone likes to say, God is his own complaint department. Your feelings might be intense and they might seem real as a two by four to the throat. But that doesn't mean your feelings are accurate. They need to be compared with God's objective reality, unchanging reality. And now at the same time, Sometimes you just need to say it. Even if you sense that this might not be fully accurate, sometimes you have to say it to someone you trust so that you can work through the confusion of how you feel versus the truth that you know. Now my neat and tidy outline gets messy at this point. For the next three verses, Hezekiah is waffling between despair and hope. Despair and hope, pleading and hope, wallowing in misery and reality. Verse 14, he says, O Lord, be my pledge of safety. And I think the messiness of the outline reflects the facts of life. Because you see, your despair doesn't always lift instantaneously, does it? Your grief doesn't always come at convenient times, does it? Grief is not linear. It does not unfold in five consecutive stages. I don't think the stages of grief thing. I don't think that's what it means. I don't think that's what the intention was. That said, Hezekiah's grief and despair is beginning to give way to this deliverance in verse 15 as he wrote after the fact this grief and joy, they sort of mingled together in this beautiful tapestry. So 2C, verses 15 to 17, we see deliverance. We could read verse 15. I asked myself, is it hopeful? Is it bitter? I think it seems like a mix. Then verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. By these things men should live is the idea here. Lord, your will be done by me right now. And then let others do it too. All that is followed by another plea for health and life. And then in verse 17, very interesting verse. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you've delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Forgiveness of sins, assurance of God's love, and a, and a purpose to it all. Purpose, pur purpose matters. It was for my welfare. The bitterness was for my welfare. You see something similar in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is an acrostic, 22 sections for the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the, the word good or well. It's all over verses 65 to 72 of Psalm 119 because each verse there starts with the same letter, uh, T or Tet, which is where we get the word Tov, Mazel Tov, if you're familiar with some, some Yiddish there. But um, Psalm 119 verse 68 says this, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Some of you may have noticed I started a lot of prayers that way, almost unconsciously sometimes, but it's because I don't know about you, but I'm a pessimist who says I'm a realist, you know? And I need to remember that God is good at all times, even during hard times, especially then. Psalm 119 verse 71 says this. It'll sound a little bit like what we read in Isaiah. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Affliction was good, he says. 
because I learn God's decrees, his decrees that reveal his character. The rules show you a God who desires a relationship, a God who is holy, a God who wants to keep you from sin and misery, a God who wants to show you the path to blessing in fellowship with him, and a God who is gracious when we fall short, a God who provides a savior for all who recognize their need of him, who recognize their failure, who take refuge in him. It was good for me that I was afflicted, the psalmist says, so that I might learn your decrees. It was a blog post at Desiring God's website this week. It was titled, After Two Whole Years Have We Humbled Ourselves Yet? Oh yes, it's about that five-letter word, COVID. There's a parody of Disney's latest hit song floating around titled, We Don't Talk About Bruno. Um, excuse me, the, the, that's, the, that's the Disney song. The parody goes like this. We don't talk about COVID. No, no, no. We don't talk about COVID. If you haven't seen the Disney movie, oh, sorry. It'd be funnier if you had. But back to the article, it says this. Two years ago today, the dominoes were falling. As cancellations and lockdowns were sweeping the globe, God was humbling us. And no doubt, a thousand other good purposes besides, but he was humbling us. And no less than that, he has humbled us. That much is clear. Yet the question remains, have we humbled ourselves? Have we acknowledged his mighty and merciful hand and received his humbling in faith and even welcomed his uncomfortable work? Have you reflected on your life like Hezekiah did? Have you, have you rejoiced in God's uncomfortable work? Have you seen that it was good for you that you were afflicted? That God's great bitterness was for your welfare? Has he brought you to the end of yourself, to where you can cry, be our arm, our strength every morning, our salvation in time of trouble? Have you discovered that it is a wonder what God can do with a broken heart when he gets all the pieces? You know, sometimes we can romanticize suffering in our life. We, we love the good stories so long as they don't focus too much on the pit of destruction. But you see, it's only when you've been to the brink and back that you can praise God like this. You have to get right up to the edge to see what it is that my sin deserves before you can appreciate God's deliverance. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we should sin to let grace increase. I've told this story before. There was a ministerial candidate. He gave his testimony. He chose his words very carefully. <clears throat> he said he was delivered from a host of awful sins, drugs, jail time, sexual immorality, and more. And God saved him from all that, he said, by calling me to himself at an early age so that I never knew a time when I didn't know Jesus is my Savior. You see, whether you have the scars of salacious sins or not, you need to know that you've, you've been delivered from something great. You need to know what you deserve. You need to know that God's affliction, whether it's punishment for sin or just a bitter providence, a bad day, a bad year, you need to know that God's affliction, all of them are good if they point you back to your Savior and your Deliverer. 
Deliverance gives way to 2D, dwelling. Dwelling, verses 18 and 20. Hezekiah has come from the gates of Sheol, the pit of destruction, all the way to the house of the Lord in verse 20. Because he lives, Hezekiah can speak of God's goodness in verse 18. He can tell the next generation, verse 19. In fact, he says he can sing because he will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, like Psalm 23. <clears throat> now, this is where we want things to end. Seeing the goodness of God's affliction, reflecting on our life, rejoicing in our Savior. This is where we want the story to end. And this is where it can end if you trust in Christ, if you strive to make your calling and election sure, if you work out your salvation through fear and trembling, if your gratitude for salvation leads to a hunger for godliness. But Hezekiah's story is not done yet. And we have to grapple with the ending to this story that God's given us. It's our third and final point. A mundane ending and an ominous request. A mundane ending and an ominous request. Verses 21 and 22. Look with me at verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, <clears throat> Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Notice the words had said. It's, it's akin to a flashback. Isaiah has inserted the psalm in the middle. Uh, but, but you see, right after God spoke healing to Hezekiah, right after the sign in verse 8, God fulfilled his promise. He allows this common medical treatment, that's what it was back then, to heal him. I'm not saying you should try it at home, but they did. They didn't use buttermilk to heal a skin problem. They used a cake of figs. It's weird. It's, it's a long time ago. That's what they did. It probably did something similar before, earlier in the story, and it didn't work. This time it works. Notice, God's miraculous healing can use things like doctors, medicine, scalpels, even though he doesn't have to. But in one sense, this seems kind of out of place because Isaiah already hinted this was going to happen. We've known since verse 8, Hezekiah would be healed. So why is it here? I think it's because of verse 22. Verse 22, Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Why does Hezekiah need another sign? This is an ominous request. It's an unnecessary request. It begs the question, is this a sign of things to come, an omen, a bad one? We could compare Hezekiah to Ahaz maybe if we wanted. Ahaz refused God's sign altogether even when God offered them. That's Isaiah chapter 7, how tragic that was. But this is pretty tragic as well. Because as Alec Moitier says, having asked for a sign to support his faith, Hezekiah failed to maintain his walk of faith. I think what you see here is a sinful lack of faith by Hezekiah. A faith that starts out strong, then wavers. A faith that is boosted by God's miraculous sign, but then it begins to depend on the sign and not on the God who gives them the sign. Wasn't God bending the laws of physics in verse 8 enough to convince Hezekiah that God could add 15 years to his life. Why did Hezekiah need one more sign, one more assurance that he would go to the house of the Lord once again? Why did he need another sign to confirm the sign? We saw what might have been Hezekiah's finest hour in Isaiah 36 and 37, but we also see his flaws 
here in 38 and 39. And they're reminders that Hezekiah still needed to trust and follow his Savior. Reminders of the sin that ultimately led to the Syrian invasion that led to the deportation and exile of God's people. <clears throat> Harsher discipline. Discipline that could have been avoided. So what do we make of all that? It reminds me of Demas. Do you know Demas, Bible trivia experts? He's mentioned three times in Paul's letters. I'm, so he must be something, right? He's mentioned in Philemon. He's mentioned in Colossians, not much, but he gets a shout out from Paul, a fellow servant in the gospel. <clears throat> and then there's 2 Timothy, probably the last letter that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10, as Paul is languishing in prison, he writes, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Did Demas turn it around? Did he repent? We don't know. All we know is the last time we see Demas, he is headed in the wrong direction. I heard Derek Thomas say that, but I can't remember who he was quoting. Demas is headed in the wrong direction. It's ominous. It's scary. It's not what we want for God, one of God's children. Dare to be a Demas. You don't see that on any t-shirts anywhere. <clears throat> and what about Hezekiah? Well, he's not headed in the right direction. Not exactly. Now, I think we can have more assurance that Hezekiah will greet us in heaven, but, but the ending to this could be better. And how about you? How do you want your story to end? Now, on one level, we are all being dragged backwards into glory by our good Savior. But doesn't that make you want to finish well? Don't you want to finish like Paul? In 2 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, <clears throat> will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And in case you think Paul had saved himself, oh, verse 18 of the same chapter, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't you want to finish well? We started by going back in time, but why? So that we can reflect on our future so that we can reflect on what choices we've made and will make, on what we deserve, on what God has given us instead. You don't have to have a brush with death to be grateful for God's salvation. You don't have to make the same mistakes as Hezekiah or Demas or thousands of others. By God's grace, you can fight the good fight. You can finish the race. You can keep the faith all the way the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be good to us. We don't deserve it. We are not good. No one is good but God alone. And we are thankful that our good Savior has called us to himself. God, be good to us. Keep us in your care. Let your goodness like a fetter bind our wandering hearts to thee. That's our prayer.
Jesus' name, amen.